Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Udang dhammang sangham namasami Often it's a we experience sense of <coughs> disease or discomfort, stress because of the uh, we're lacking something, you know, something we don't have, or physical, sensual, psychological, spiritual, you know, something we don't have yet. If we only could get that, we'd be all right. Yeah. That's the kind of uh, way it's sensed. If we get this done, we'd be all right. If we could have this happen, it'd be all right. If we could find this, we'd be all right. If we could get to this stage, we'd be all right. If we could, you know, have something. And generally, by and large, the kind of, uh, you know, human society, human intelligence moves in that way. You know, we develop things, we get things. Uh, Gain things. Of course, you can look at it another way. You know, about really about what we losing things. You know, as having less pain, less uh, <laughs> less stress. You know, less discomfort, less um, uh, complexity. Mm-hmm. It's good to kind of look at it that way, just because it's so, sometimes it's one way, sometimes another way. But actually. Uh, you know, the, in the Buddhist path, the, the two things have to be borne in mind. Sometimes it's a sense we don't actually have, don't have enough uh, calm or patience. We need to develop something. Mm. And these are really, you know, fundamentally the things that we need more of are not external but internal resources. You know, such as we need to have more patience, more clarity, more calm, more mindfulness, more, you know, of those kinds of uh, spiritual faculties. And these arise very much dependent upon the absence of other things, the removal of, of, of uh, <coughs> greed, hatred, delusion, removal of dullness, removal of restlessness, removal of proliferative, proliferating thoughts. You see, so the kind of absence of one thing allows for the development of other things, allows the, to, your life begins to fill with blessings, really not from a kind of cramming it in attitude to get more, but really from a kind of releasing these blocks that prevent us naturally filling and, and blossoming and, and being enriched, you know. So actually, although Buddhist teaching is very much about suffering and stress and often talking about hindrances and corruptions of the mind, the point is that it, it's, it's fundamentally, it's very optimistic. It's saying, you know, if you just clear this lot, you're fine. You know, fundamentally, innately, 
you know, you have all, you, you innately have the potential. It's not innately, we're not innately awakened, we're not you know, already enlightened. We already have the potential for that. If we, if we learn to remove these obstacles, this kind of natural enrichment can occur. You know, so it's through the cessation that the fruitions occur. Yeah. Cessation. Cessation means putting things to rest. Yeah. Putting to rest the fever of the mind, or the push, or the agitation, or the stubbornness, or the you know things that. And you really learn how to put things to rest because you you recognise when you focus on particular mental, psychological. Habits, you know, which actually feel good, you know, which gives you the best results, which actually feel pleasant, the ones you really want to be with, which give a good result for yourself and for other people. This is a very kind of simple question. You continue to place this question about what is stressful or, or uh, abrasive or. Um, pleasant or agreeable or harmonious you know so you just keep placing that question and you're not really placing it upon uh, fundamentally on external phenomena but on your own stuff where your mind works the way your habits are because this is the thing you can really have some say over you know what are the people doing or saying you have some say over but not much what's happening on the planet you have some say over over a course of time, but immediately you can have a lot of say over um, what you're bringing into the present and uh, the way you're receiving it, how you're relating to it. And this is where this, this really important practice of, of, how, of cessation, putting things to rest, in order to allow an enrichment to occur. Yeah. The <clears throat> and this, um, the, this uh, one of the chief Buddha's chief disciples, Sariputta, when he he was um, trying to get in touch with some kind of teaching, it would be libera- liberating, and he met uh, the this Arahant Asaji, and who said, "I'm sorry, you know, I, don't, I can't really explain this very well." But uh, Sariputta said, "Well, just give me the." Gist, you know, just a kind of few clues as to what the teachings are, and that uh, the Asaji said, "Well, the teachings taught by the great Samana, the Buddha, are uh, he has seen the cause of all conditioned things, and he has seen their cessation too." And you know, wow! So what? You know, and Sariputta really got that and said, "Wow!" You know. That's the bit that I've been missing. To us, it's just like, what's that mean? Yeah. And he said, "This is this is death, the deathless." And he had this realization of, of something beyond um, these thoughts and feelings and mind states and energies and attitudes and compulsions and drives that we all experience. The structures of our mind, you might say. So these are the kind of operative drives yeah. and actually the, when, when that mind can relax or release or rest from its operative drives 
as an opening to something that's unoperated, undriven, unconditioned. You know? It's not formulated, it's not fabricated, it's not something you, you make up and hold together through some energy or some drive or some bias or some wish or some habit. It stands by itself. You know? And it's really important to recognize there is this. The Buddha said there is this unconditioned. You know? What that means, it means you don't have to believe in it. You don't have to hold it together. You don't have to, to make it happen. You don't have to convince anybody of it. You don't have to keep convincing yourself of it. It stands up by itself. You know, so your mind can really just deconstruct. It can let go of that holding things, remembering things, planning things, wangling things, hoping for things, resisting things, hanging on to things, you know, which you begin to see are the, are the fundamental drives that we, we all experience. You don't, which we begin to see more clearly when we meditate. Because most of the time these drives and structures are barely visible because we're involved with what we're doing. We're involved with what those drives are doing. You know, we're involved with our, um, our work, our, uh, what, we, what we want to have done. You know, we're involved with the, the, the topics, you might say, and we're not involved with what, what's holding those topics. Hmm? We're not really seeing that. Uh, the obsessiveness or the irritation or the benevolence. You know, it's not all negative, but you know, when you sit still, when you stop moving around, and maybe as you relax and you stop shutting off and resisting, you know, there's a kind of flood comes through the mind, a stream. There's nothing, you know, when actually there's no, no need to do anything. Uh, you know, so where's all this coming from? What's causing all this to arise? You know, you're sitting here for half an hour, 45 minutes. All you have to do is sit there and hold the floor down. So what's the rest of it? Why is the rest of it going on? Anything? Well, don't know. It's not a problem. Just a few little thoughts, nothing particularly intense or heavy, just this, that, this, that, thinking about remembering this, a few ideas come up. That's fine with me. Yeah, it's not a problem. It's not, it's not terrible. And it's interesting, isn't it? Why is that happening? And when, um, you know, someone, someone who's a Buddha says, this, you know, I've seen the cessation of this, I've been the, the cessation of that, and this is, this is the bit where you really experience something unconditioned. Why doesn't my mind do that? <laughs> Sounds good. Why doesn't it do it? You know? It's like it's kind of, you start to recognize it's, it's sort of locked in a particular drive, in a particular habit to keep formulating something if we don't particularly need to or want to, to formulate something, to, to have something going on. Yeah. So we're running on automatic. The mind is not able to really release its, its energies, its, uh, its drives, its uh, occupations, its conditioning. It's like knitting all the time.
you know. It's knitting sweaters, socks, scarves, and says, but there's nobody to wear them, but you can knitting some more. <laughs> and the old rubbish sometimes. I don't want anybody to try and wear the socks that my mind knits. You know, and it would do any old rubbish, as you, you know, speak for yourself, but <laughs> not terrible things, just kind of pointless things. Sometimes terrible things too. <laughs> Mostly just pointless, just rambling. Is that a problem? It's not necessarily a problem, but it is, uh, it's a sign that something, it's like some, a nerve is stuck, it's like a trapped nerve somewhere. So it has to keep jittering away. And, uh, and of course, sometimes it, it jitters, it, it gets really quite nasty. You know, craving, aversion, grudges, so forth. And you recognize, well, right now, when there's nothing to do but just sit here, and all this stuff is happening, can I really trust what it's, how the way it's operating when I start speaking and acting and seeing and thinking and planning? You know, there's, a, there's something, there's a distortion built into this system. It's like you know, the thing that you can't, if you can't switch it off, if you can't moderate it, um, can you really trust what it's doing? Because you're not actually in charge of it. Yeah. So you get this kind of oh. this realization of cessation is considered to be the um, <clears throat> at least uh, the sign of enlightenment or awakening or you know the good bit you might say. <laughs> yeah. And why, of course, it's it's um, you know, very crucial to to, under, to to acknowledge that, because in the Buddha's teaching, you don't really have an ultimate truth. You have a beyond. You, know? you don't really have an ultimate truth. You have a cessation, a resting, a cessation of everything. All the ways that your mind conceives, deceives, proliferates, imagines, forms things, all that can cease. And you can't really say much about what happens then. (laughs) But the Buddha could, and he said, this is the best. (laughs) This is the sublime. This is the peaceful. And he also said, you can do it. You know, it can happen for you. It's not... And there actually, you don't, there are different stages of it. What's called the stream entra is the first stage. Then the um, once return and non return arahant. So different stages of it. So it doesn't mean it's like bingo, one shot, and there you're all there. It means there's a progressive ceasing of particular mental or psychological habits, structures, drives. Tendencies, yeah. Yeah. So this isn't just about a thought or a physical feeling or a bit of dullness. This is about underlying stuff. Mm-hmm. 
often you have to kind of clear through these uh, uh, superficial, uh, you know, thought habits or difficult emotions or personal problems. You know, just to kind of clarify enough, calm enough. This is what the point of meditation is: to calm, living a skillful life and a harmonious life and a life of kindness and gentleness. Just so you're not building up so much crud on your mind that you can't see through it. It's rather like you want to see through it, you want to understand uh, or, or, or see through a glass. You've got to clear the mud off the glass. But at the same time, the point is not to actually just study glass. You want to see what's outside. Yeah. So the glass is like, like our consciousness, our mental consciousness. The idea is you kind of clean it up so you can see through it. You don't wish it's th- you don't actually want to get fixated on glass, you know, endlessly polishing glass. You want to say it's clear enough; I can see through to something that's wow, you know. What? So that's the stream entry. They cleaned enough of the mind to be able to see through to something unconstructed, not a matter of a mind or a belief or an emotion or a feeling or a rapturous spiritual state, something the Buddha said, you, you, can't, you can't wrap words around this one, but this is the best because this is where the anxiety, the compulsion, the agitation, the fear of losing, all that goes. It goes in particular ways so that we begin to just kind of recognize you know there are three particular ways first three ways first drives or orientations of mind personality speculation views and attachment to systems customs techniques So we become clear that you know a lot of our, our uh, suffering arises around personality. That is, you know, you say something about me, I feel kind of like, hmm, you know, I would just say something nice about me, not something unpleasant about me. I don't need to call me, you know, fathead or Dumbo, or whatever, like to say something nice about me. So there's a certain angle there. I've got a certain bias. There's a a holding there, isn't there? A certain bias. So the consciousness is biased towards me as a person. Is it possible that for any of us, or where everybody's going to say about us is, you're nice, you're good, I like you. Isn't it possible that somebody will say, you idiot, <laughs> I don't like you at all, you blew it. <laughs> isn't, that at all, isn't that possible? Extremely possible. Therefore, as long as one holds this personality structure, you're going to suffer. Yeah. Personality is that which manifests, that which is accessible to to other people it's our you know our pers- personal character you might say it's also the physical form it's the kind of front our shop window yeah 
And sometimes, you know, you, yourself, you can have difficulties with the personality. You think, I wish I didn't do this so much. I wish I was quieter. I really like her because she's so serene and peaceful. I'm agitated. He's really great with the way he speaks or holds silence and I'm like this. So you don't like even like your own personality. <laughs> so, you, you know, you can have this thing about wanting to have a better personality or a nicer personality for yourself. That's where the mind always holds this perspective, seeing things through the window of personality. Wouldn't it be nice not to have to do that? Just to see somebody's, you know, getting angry or unpleasant. Oh, it seems like he's having a hard day, rather than how dare he say that to me? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? So instead of being offended by what people say or do about you, you'd, you'd kind of look at what they're doing and thinking, oh dear, he seems a little bit upset. I hope he gets over that. Hmm? Yeah. How compassion would be there. Because you've taken away, removed, the obstacle that's preventing your compassion. Now, we always, always feel we should be more compassionate. I like to be a more compassionate, loving person. So I get my, go to the compassion supermarket, look down the aisles for the best, top-rate compassion. <coughs> Try and shove it in. <laughs> Read books on it. Really like compassion. It's good stuff, the good gear. I want more of it. Just as I'm in the supermarket trying to buy my packet of compassion, this idiot barges into me <laughs> and takes the last packet off the shelf. What a, what a rotten so-and-so, you know. He stole my compassion. I remember we had a, 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 a visiting monk from... Mahayana tradition in here one a uh, few week months ago, a few years ago, and uh, he used to like to chant the great compassion mantra, you know, which is a kind of a very lovely chant. He's chanting, he like to do this every day in the shrine room. One day he was doing it in the shrine room, and some kind of visitor barged into the shrine room and interrupted him. He gave a really earful. <laughs> I won't repeat what he said. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> because you're taking the experience personally you know like, like this is my time my space and you've interrupted me doing what I wanted to do I was being compassionate and you went and disturbed me <laughs> you know <laughs> so but then so so you know, just, just the lovely idea, beautiful. And yet, does it arise through putting something in? Or does it arise through releasing something? We release the self-angle on things, my take on things, you know, seeing things purely from my perspective, lo and behold, compassion's there. I don't have to create it, make it, it's there. It happens. 
because the mind isn't constricted, isn't, you know, tied into this rather narrow little place. It's not even a very nice place. The mind that isn't tied into that is naturally experiences compassion. It's the nature of it. It's, the mind is a resonant quality. It's sensitive. It picks up things, doesn't it? You know, you sense things, you feel things, you enjoy things, you dislike things, you're inspired by things, you're frightened of things. It's doing all that all the time. It's naturally as this kind of resonant, reverberating quality. But the problem is, so often we put it inside a fusty little tin can called me. It doesn't really sound very good at all in there. It sounds kind of cluttered and compressed and agitated and it's got no space. So we think, right, this tin can, I'm going to get some, put, put some more space in it. Where's the space supermarket? I can buy some space and shove that in there. Give me some space. Give me more space. I want more space. I don't have enough space here. You know? And so it's one of those things that when we, in monasteries, when you do meditation retreats and things like that, people want more space. Love space. I like space. And yet you start to recognize, is that going to come from outside or within? If it's going to come from outside, it's very fragile. It isn't going to last for long. If it can come from within, it's going to last a lot longer. If I can, and how do I generate space within? Just by not holding on, not demanding, not pushing, releasing the complexities and the intensities of my mind. You know, I didn't have to shove space in there. I just learned to let things not arise. So it's not even about getting rid of things, but actually of not bothering to create things. You know? Because if you think that it's about getting rid of something, that still imagines you actually have these things, and you've got to cut them off, and get rid of them. That also is not the case. Actually, it seems like it. But it's really, don't get rid of anything, just stop creating it. And realize that now, without any particular effort, on automatic pilot, we create, or the mind creates the past, the future, the self, the world, what I should be, could be, am not, what other people feel about me. It's, it's all in there. It's an automatic. Yeah. How much of one's mind is actually bending forward? Yeah. Drifting back. Having a sense of others and what they are about. Having a sense of myself and how I am with this. It's, you know, it's a, because it's so compulsive, we imagine that it's fixed. And we're just trying to find the best things to lean on. The best things to hold onto. And the Buddha said, yeah, you can, there's some fine things, there's some really good things you can hold onto. Very you know, sublime states. But if you want deathlessness, stop holding on. Stop leaning on anything. 
and you know it isn't so easy of course to change or to deconstruct not the particular topics of mind but the way the mind operates the assumptions the biases so the, the often the most um, frequently mentioned clue in this process is using this uh, well the first tool is dukkha recognizing wait a minute I'm sort of generating stress trying to figure out where it's going to be what I'm going to be what's going to be happening that's actually just creating agitation in my mind do I need to do that right now okay now I'm kind of hanging on to something in the past that's making me feel regret or nostalgia or do I need to do that right now okay yeah now I'm hanging on to some impression of other people it's bothering me do I really need to do that are they going to go away by me hanging on no <laughs> are they going to change by me hanging on no what all you're doing all you're doing right you know you think, well, if I hang on long enough I'll, I'll but all we find is a certain you know rigidity personal suffering so do you need to do that right now so it's not like saying never even never not saying to never think of the future never think of the past but is it possible for some time to just let go of that just to see what it'd be like so that it's on manual rather than automatic we can, on manual, we can decide to think about someone or think about ourselves or plan the future. Or it's it's, it's, it's voluntary. It's not something that you're, you're that's running you. Yeah. So when you start to see the unsatisfactoriness of this, you, the the real uh, um, breakthrough teaching, which is very simply expressed, but again, it's kind of hard to do, is that that suffering is not something you kind of fight against or build a wall against or tut tut about you actually receive it you open up to it Hmm? that sense of the feeling of that that pressure you take it in you you feel it and you you open up to that So most um, of our complex topics and problems come down to very core feelings of a wall, a rigidity, a tightness, or a kind of flutter, and a running. You know, I'm running to hold on, running to get away, running to figure something out, or a kind of rigidity of blocking, trying to feel safe. Hmm? Okay, you know, so really dukkha comes down to that internally. You know, you hear some people like today, you know, people suffering and illnesses and something. You say, oh, really, what can you do about that? A little flutter. Or, oh, I hope nothing goes wrong. A little bit of a stiffening, you know. Natural enough. But, you know, 
say, just open to that sense of the vulnerability, the insecurity. And you reckon all these emotions and feelings can then start to flow and move and change. If you contemplate the changeability of it all, the flowing of it all, these kind of energies, senses, perceptions, flowing, and yet finally you're not actually holding it into being who you should be or being on top of something or being okay with something or finding an answer to something. You're letting the problematic or the whatever it is just be there flowing and moving. It doesn't sound great, but actually already right there there's a sense of, oh, you know, at least I'm facing it, at least I'm with it, at least I've, I've stopped, you know, adding more to this. And gradually through that you get a sense of uh, a, a, a sensitivity or a consciousness or a wisdom or a knowing that can be with that and not in it. You know, and say, this is human predicament. And it's not me, it's not mine, it's everybody's. It's not, why does it have to happen to him or to her? It's, this happens to everybody, always has, always will. Yeah? It's not, why is it so unfair? It's not unfair, everybody. It's unfair for everybody. <laughs> it's completely fair. <laughs> everybody gets a rough deal. <laughs> you know, no, it's just looking at that level. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to do things about you know, health and welfare and so forth. But an immediate inner release from the pressure and the depression of it all. That's what the Buddha was was pointing to. When we get out of the pressure of it, they're more capable of of finding conventional solutions to the problem because we're no longer so stressed by it all. We're patient. We just do what we can. So the sense of the, the real change in, in flow and impermanence of these these feelings and energies. And one thing, you know, just stopping that, that fixation. Remember something that Ajahn Chah is in addressing people in the in the in the monastery. You know, it's a monastery like, you know, seventy monks, fifty nuns hundred lay people sitting there and he said in this monastery there are no monks in this monastery there's no nuns in this assembly hall there's no lay people there's no monks no nuns, no lay people there's like 150 people sitting there <laughs> okay, what? <laughs> he said there's just perceptions, feelings, sensations <laughs> you know Desires, joys, skillful, unskillful, it's just this. Yeah. So, of course, you could say it's the same reality, and yet it's actually a reality which is much more manageable, much less fixed, much more, and actually truer. It's less constructed. You know, if I, if I think of Sam or Jeff or Susan or whatever, I mean, I actually construct that. I have to put a memory and a physical appearance and an emotional take on it. Something, one builds that up. 
But uh, you know, when, peop- when you're actually with people directly, very directly, what's happening? Kind of flutters of joy and interest, excitement, uncertainty, disappointment, you know, sights, sounds. That's what's happening, isn't it? It's much more direct and true. You see, by the unconstructing, you come to something that's much more direct and true and you just work with that. Yeah? So that's the way that by unconstructing, you come to a fuller, clearer reality that's actually much more manageable. You know, right in the present moment. Dealing with ideas of people. Always we're going to come up against how that those people would be constructed. Yeah? And of you know, and this is of course very well known and very well understood on one level. You get, but this is where all of the social problems occur over those other people we've constructed. We've constructed the different nationalities. They're all like that. You know, we don't want them here because it's them. Your gender differences. That's typical women. This is men. You know, they're like that. Those kinds of things is Muslims, you know, Jews, you know, <laughs> blacks, <laughs> Irish, Welsh, <laughs> Mancunians. <laughs> you know, if you live in West London, it's the people from the East End. <laughs> you live in one street, it's the people in the next street. <laughs> you know, it's continually doing that, isn't it? And this is where all the kind of prejudices and we come with fixed views come from. from actually constructing people, constructing nations, constructing genders, constructing the others. And and, this compulsive habit, what if we didn't do that? And you only do that when you don't construct yourself. So the two go hand in hand. So often we, in constructing others, helps us to construct ourselves. We take a stand or constructing myself. As I construct myself, I take a position, I have a stand, automatically I start to construct others or the mind constructs others who are different from me. And sooner or later it's going to be a, you know, the chafing, the conflict. And do we need to do that? Could we just say this is joy, this is irritation, this is disappointment, this is confusion, this is warm-heartedness, this is, you know, actually what's happening. So in the cessation of a construction, there's the possibility for a fuller, wider response. This is why cessation is not a negation of anything. It's a release from narrowness and blocks. So when Ajahn Chah said that, then naturally it gives a, a, a sense of, you know, oh, that's true. If you're hanging on to being a monk or a nun or a lay person or whatever, oh, suddenly here we are. It's a much more harmonious field, and you can, can, you know, much more voluntary ability to construct according to what's suitable. You know, which cooter you go to, which bathroom you use. Fair enough, you know. (laughs) 
And you see how uh, how you're going against the the, the the drive there is to to establish uh, you know clarity, you know future other people, myself. You, you know this is why it's 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 tricky because it means you have to let go of being definite about who you are. Definite about where you're going. Definite about the future. Definite about other people. You know, have to let go of that. And, you know, oh dear. But in doing that, as we do this in, through, through, through wisdom, then it allows the wisdom faculties to, to blossom, the compassion faculties to blossom, and uh, our lives become more fluid, more flowing, more buoyant. Yeah. So there's the absence and the presence. We become more fully present through removing these things that keep us shut in. It's a very kind of nice little piece to remember when you're suffering what are you doing that you don't need to do what would it be like without that thought without that angle without that you know just play with it what would it be like? Could, do you really need to have that thought that feeling that attitude right now what would it be like without it yeah. and uh just kind of keeping that in mind. It's a very beautiful teaching because it also it, it gives us back to ourselves. It's saying, you know, there's nothing really you have to add. Nothing you have to gain. There's no goal that you have to acquire. There's no ultimate truth you've got to conceive and get hold of. There's no state you've got to become. Just stop holding yourself back. Take, a, take the weight off your mind. Anyone?